Happy birthday, Charlotte. It also happens to be my daughter Tamron's birthday. Yeah. It's a special day. I add my greeting of Paul, Paul Jones. Paul, stand up, would you please? Yeah. Paul, welcome. We had Paul this time last year in the United States with us at a family gathering there and his story of his daughter Candace moved our audience to tears. And Paul is the leader, the director of a, a movement called One Million Strong, which is a a rehabilitation program among the nations for young people, inspired uh, by his daughter Candace and the, the story of her life. Um, so it's an honor to have Paul here today. As I mentioned, um, Sheba and Santosh uh, Varghese are with us as well, and uh, they've been introduced previously during the week. Um, it's a joy and an honor to have them with us. They came down from Nairobi uh, to be with us on, on this occasion. Uh, they, together with Peter and Charlotte, are key leadership. They represent the key leadership in our house in the generation that is emerging to replace us, quite frankly. And uh, it, it's a delight for me to see the connection that is being made between these two uh, leadership families in the house of God. We've been laboring this week quite intensely in resetting the foundations of understanding uh, as the basis for our growing up and becoming mature in Christ. Admittedly, these are messages of wisdom among the mature. These are not primarily messages for the immature uh, or for children. I was stunned some years ago when I heard someone say, a preacher actually say, that God has no intentions for his people to become mature. And the preacher was actually thinking that somehow this was, uh, that the thought that we might become mature uh, was arrogance. And, and his rejection of the notion of being mature in the things of God and in the execution of the business of God, so to speak, uh, the representation of God in the earth, that somehow it was an humble thing or a thing of humility to suggest that you will always be unable to carry the presence of God. In fact, the notion of carrying the presence of God seemed so antithetical to his perspective on what the Christian faith was about. But, but as I reflected on it, I realized that this is the staple doctrine of evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism. It is an assumption that the grace of God, which is equated with the mercy of God, will 
be best demonstrated when we get to heaven. So the goal was not uh, to be bothered by this world. The goal was to matriculate to heaven. And uh, we'd sing songs like, in the sweet by and by, you know, that when it all happens, uh, that we move on from this life, suddenly uh, in the presence of God, and that was another fallacy, that the presence of God was only available in heaven. Um, that in the presence of God, we'll know fully all the mysteries that we have not known before. What utter rubbish, silliness. When the plain meaning of Scripture is, Paul said in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, he said, we do have a message of wisdom among the mature. But I can't give you the message of wisdom. In fact, I made a command decision that before I even came to see you, I would dumb down my message to the most basic and elemental form of it, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he gave as his explanation for that decision that he had taken prior to coming to see the, Corinthi the, the, to see the Corinthians, that it was a decision based on the condition of the Corinthians. He said, when for the time you ought to be teachers of the word, you're still on milk. And he said, are you not carnal? Are you not immature? Carnal Christianity is not primarily about sexual misconduct, although that may be a, a, a clear demonstration of carnality. But carnality is, equates, carnality equates with immaturity because you're functioning primarily in the realm dictated by and governed by your flesh. You see? The word for flesh is the word carnal. But when you move on to maturity, part of what it means to be mature is to discover an identity in God that's consistent with a purpose in God for representing the sovereign majesty of God in the way you live. Now, that, that implies an economy sufficient to sustain you, among other things, to respond to the, to, to the deceptions of Satan that have so entrapped mankind that it's impossible for them to act in the world in representation of the Lord. But a message of wisdom among the mature is first to identify you again as being put in the earth with a destiny to represent, the, the, uh, to present again the nature and the character of God against the opposition of the enemy who would seek to, to stifle and extinguish that picture of who God is. Because in the presentation of the picture of who God is, mankind can have the vision that was lost, the vision regarding mankind, the purposes for which mankind was created, or, uh, that mankind could again see that original purpose and rise up to take it. But to do that, you have to overcome the schemes of the devil. So all these messages this week have been 
a hard plowing, deep plowing to break up that fallow ground and to plant the seeds, to install a culture that would lead us to the under, inexorably to the understanding that we are the viceroys of God. We are the means by which God himself becomes visible in creation. And in fact, creation was established to entertain and to support us in that endeavor. That in Adam, we were reduced to simply surviving. And we lost the culture of sonship which equates the culture of representation because a son is the radiance of his father's glory. The son is the exact representation of his father's being. We lost the culture of sonship and with it we lost the purpose and the identity for living as the representations of God in the creation. And as such, all that creation matters to us now is to support us in our carnality. So we hope to survive until we don't survive. <laughs> until we die. It's appointed unto men once to die. So the idea of living to survive is void ab initio from the beginning. It's not an enterprise in which we may succeed because we'll die. So it means that we have a purpose greater than surviving for being. And there's nothing clearer about that purpose than to become the majesties of God. To adopt, to take on, to be clothed with the Elohim of God. The term Elohim, as we saw in Psalm 82, and in some ways I'm recapping much of uh, things that have been said, but just the high points because I want to finish up. At least I want to, to launch the last part of this knowing there's no chance I'll finish. But it'll allow me uh, in subsequent recordings to unpack further uh, what is called the, uh, the armor of God. The Elohim of God, the reference to the, to the title Elohim, is the reference of majesty. Majesty. We get the word magistrate from it. We are the executive functions. We are the plenipotentiary. These are governmental terms. We have been properly constituted and delegated as the power and the authority of God in the exousia, in the exercise of governance in the exercise of dominance on the planet. It was our original grant. God once said to Adam, have dominion. Rule. The word for dominion is the foundational word for Lord. Dominate. Be the Lord. Be the Tyrannus Rex. Because the, the Latin word for Lord, for Dominus, is Tyrannus. And if you're the Tyrannus, who is the king, you are the Tyrannus Rex. The original Tyrannus Rex in creation was Adam. God put him to dominate the creation with the intent that he should establish the order of heaven in the earth as the delegated son. 
when he, when he abdicated his responsibility through deception, it was necessary to raise up the last Adam. And bringing forth the last Adam as the one of priority, as the firstborn. It is, it is not a contradiction in terms that the last should be the first, if by first you mean the pattern son. First in rank. Arche. The term that means prince, leader, ruler, original source. In bringing back the arche, in bringing back the dominant one, God intended to reset the order of creation. And that's why he put you in the dominant one. So that you might be the reset of creation. Now in the, in the past messages, we have been unraveling the schemes of the devil. Looking at how he operates. Understanding the vulnerability of the human soul to the impulses that are taken in through the five senses and the interpretation of these impulses through the mind of the soul. At the same time, we've been revisiting the fact that we have zoe life, which is a, a pattern of life that transcends the suke, that transcends the bios or the bios. Biology is, is the definition of our life in the earth, in the flesh, in the human circumstances. The interpretation of these impulses that form our conclusions about life around the principal emotion of fear allows us to be dominated in our souls by the schemes of the devil. But God is bringing back the understanding of the life of the spirit, the life called Zoe, which transcends biology, which transcends creation because it is eternal life inasmuch as it is a descriptor of the very life of God. It's eternal in the sense that it originates outside of time and space. And in that life you cannot die. And the demonstration of the superiority of that life over, over the life of the soul or the life of the body, Jesus himself was raised from the dead and you were raised with him. If the goal of resurrection was as we were raised with him, we should go to heaven when we die, you'd, the act of baptism should, in water should last a little bit longer. Until you expire. It would be a favor to you to usher you into the realm of heaven at that point. No. It's a symbol of having put off the old man subject to the schemes of the devil and being raised in the new man by the power of the Spirit of God who is the carrier in time and space of eternal life. And you were configured to be filled with eternal life in your spirit and be resuscitated and be re-energized and be repositioned to continue the purpose established by Jesus of the representation of the nature and the character of God in human society. 
That's what we've been talking about. So now I want to go to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, to unpack a little bit further the how we are to engage the enemy. We understood how he functioned, and now we are to understand how we are to engage him within the context of what is called the armor of God. So, you will notice that this is a conflict of powers. Powers. Quite often, we have so localized the discussion of our engagement of Satan and we so personalized it that we've missed the obvious. The obvious is this. It is a conflict of, between kingdoms. Therefore, it is intrinsically, therefore it is inherently a conflict of powers. And the question is, when you confront the enemy, do you understand the power that, is, that resides in you to defeat him? In a conflict of powers, the idea is not one of accommodation. In a conflict of powers, it's about total victory. That is the term pacification. Pacification. In military terms, pacification is to so thoroughly degrade the enemy's ability to wage, to resist you, that you have pacified him. You've made a docile dog out of a roaring lion. That's the idea. But instead we have thought about finding a place of accommodation with the powers of darkness. So we've interpreted scripture like the gates of hell shall not prevail against us as our job is to hold out because hell's gates are pressing us. That's rubbish. Gates do not move. Gates are not known for attacking anybody. The only gates in scripture that ever moved were the gates of Gaza on the back of a drunken Samson. Otherwise, gates are stationary. They're supposed to protect what's behind the gates. And the promise is when you come in the name which is by the authority of the one who has already trashed the kingdom of darkness, when you come to take to bring rescue to those that you've been sent to bring out from behind the gates, the entrapment of the gates, the killing ground that they've been configured to, to, to be, a way to, to take advantage of an opposing army, that you've neutralized the effectiveness of these gates to, to, and their schemes to kill you as you come in. And I don't have time to unpack for you because I have already done so in, in the messages about how the gates were set up like a maze so that archers on the wall could pick you off because at some point you were going to have to turn your back on the archers because the maze required you to go in a zigzag pattern in order to come to the gates. 
Jesus is saying, that scheme cannot keep you from doing what I've sent you to do because I've already overcome. So, when you read this scripture, it is obvious that, quote, spiritual warfare is about the conflict of powers. Do not ever take a knife to a gunfight. We've been doing that. We've been doing that repeatedly. We who actually should pack the gun are taking a knife and assuming that the enemy has a gun. So we're hoping to dodge and weave and, and find cover. No. No. We are the superior kingdom. And we are superior because we possess a superior authority. What we lack is both the knowledge of our authority and the skill in using it. And that's what these pieces of the armor of God are acquainting us with. It says, so we talked about taking your stand against the schemes of the devil. Because, he says, you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Now we know that. Uh, we know that it's said, that that is said, but we ignore what is said. If you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but you're wrestling against a configuration based in schemes, tricks, deceptions, why on earth do you act? Why on earth would we act as if the enemy we're engaging is a human being? No, they're carriers of a deception. Human beings may carry a deception. They carry the deception under which they themselves have been made subject. So the way we engage them ought not be the way you engage a human being. It should be the way you engage the devil. So even when you're staring into the face of a human being, who is the carrier of that weaponry against you, you do not engage the human as if he are dealing with another human. That's threshold. That's foundational. That's 101. When you do, you're off on the wrong foot. And even if you manage to pulverize the human being, you will have been entirely ineffective against the devil. And you just resurface in some other carrier of his presence. When you deal with him, you deal with him effectively, knowing the weapons of your warfare. Every aspect of the armor of God is an offensive weapon. There's no portion of the armor of God that is meant to be defensive. But the way you operate in the power of God in dealing with the devil has to be an entirely new vernacular to you. Because it's not normal, it's not natural. You have to be recultured, you have to be re-educated, you have to be made aware of things you don't know. 
And shouting at the devil is apparently the least effective way to dislodge him. In fact, think of it this way. When you shout at the devil, he knows that you're weak. When you shout at him, he knows you don't know what you're doing. And he'll say, oh, look at this kid. How shall we play with him today? Poke you in the belly to see if you will, <laughs> you're like a doll, you know, to see what sound you will make. On one occasion, I was dealing with the demonic spirit. I was in the city of Villahermosa in the state of Tabasco in the country of Mexico. And I had a translator with me. His name was Mario Bolivar, good friend, um, and a long time, a long time friend, wonderful family in Mexico. So the demon spoke out of the young man that we were attempting to liberate and said to, him, said to me, he said, you don't believe what you're saying. And then he said, I believe I want to kick you. <laughs> and Mario said, <laughs> Mario didn't want to translate. I said, well, I need to know what he said. So he translated. He said, well, Samuel, he said, uh, I believe he wants to kick you. And then he said, oh my God, Samuel, what are we going to do? <laughs> so I laughed. I looked at the demon speaking out of the young man, and I said, do you suppose that these angels who are with me will allow you to do that? And he immediately dropped his head. He said, get out of there. And he left. And then the young man came to his senses, and he was mortified that he had spoken so disrespectfully to a representation of the Lord. And I said, no, it wasn't you talking to me. It was the demon. I knew that. So I wasn't going to get into it with him as if I were getting into it with you. It was between him and me, not between you and me. I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The rulers of the darkness of this world, if you look at the language, it is so powerful. It tells us what we're dealing with. The power, you see, is all based in deception, smoke and mirrors. The rulers of the darkness of this world, of this age. And the, weapon, the weaponry is rooted in wickedness. Never assume that the enemy can be motivated by a good intent. He does not intend you well. Whatever he does, however he twists and turns when you're dealing with him, it's just another way to end up harming you. So why on earth would you ever listen to him? But first you have to be able to distinguish his voice from your own voice. Because he will trade on familiar emotions to your soul. And he'll attempt to trigger those emotions in all the ways that your five senses have allowed him to access your soul. So for example, if he can, make, if he can repeat certain words to you that he once used to captivate you with, 
through familiar people, a mother, a father, a husband, children, grandfathers. If he can, rep if he can replicate the sound that can stir that, that thing in you that makes you feel so worthless, that makes you feel so ashamed, so vulnerable, that's what he will do. That's what he will do. Those are his weapons. He, is, he produces wickedness to drag you into darkness. That's how he does it. If you don't know that, you've taken a knife to a gunfight. Because what you're going to do is you're going to be turned against yourself. By allowing the enemy to define you, he turns you against you. And you'll fight with yourself while he traps you even further in that scheme. Right? I want to open up. I want to open up one of these pieces of the armor of God for you. Um, allow me to go to this one, skipping through the first three. Because it says, above all, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Right? Taking the shield of faith. So what then is the shield of faith? What are we to understand about this device? The word for shield is the word thoros, T-H-U-R-E-O-S, thoros. And the origin of the word is a stone for the closing of the entrance of a cave, thoros, a shield, a stone for the closing of the entrance of a cave. So the Roman soldier's shield was a big shield. Like, like if behind the shield he was in an impenetrable cave. That, that's the origin of the word. Now, when I saw that, the revelation of it became altogether apparent. It's called the shield of faith, right? It's called the shield of faith. So I want to bring back what I talked about in regards to faith for you. Faith is the Greek term pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, pistis. And it is found in numerous references, but it primarily is in uh, the reference of uh, First of, 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 of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith, pistis, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, by which the fathers obtained for themselves an excellent testimony. Two verses down, it says, for whoever 
comes to God must believe that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hmm? Now, now, the word pistis means an unshakable belief in a thing. Now, it wasn't a religious word. In the car last night, as we were coming back from uh, down in Franschuk, where we spent most of the day, we're talking about how the Greek language was infused, was used to illustrate principles that did not exist previously in the Greek language. And those, how those terms were superimposed with us or, 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 or made, they were infused. They were infused with terms that were brought in by the apostles in that period of history. The meanings of these terms were entirely new to the language. When Jesus died and was raised, when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and given a download of the understanding of who Jesus was and why he came, just like Jesus said, he'll take of what is mine and he'll show it to you, to express these things that they were now being shown, which were first in the earth, threshold, new. If they existed at all, Previously, they existed in, the, in types and shadows among the Jews. But in the Greek world, these were unknown concepts. So, for example, the concept of baptism was an ordinary word among the Jews. Excuse me, among the, among the Greeks. It meant to dip something in, in another, like dipping a sponge into a solution of hot soapy water so you could you could uh, clean a counter you can you can clean up something so back when you dip the sponge into hot soapy water you were baptizing the sponge it's an ordinary word baptizo immerse one thing in another now the thing you immersed into the medium in which you immersed it was capable of su of, of sucking up of um of absorbing the liquid in, in, in the container. So, for example, you didn't dip a stone in a, hot, a bowl of hot soapy water. Why? Because there was no relationship, no interaction between the stone and the water. But a sponge would, would absorb the soapy water, and it was understood that, when you, that the sponge became a transporter, a carrier of the hot soapy water, so that you could, by the motion of the, by the use of the sponge, apply the agency for cleaning. Right? It was always understood. It wasn't the sponge that cleaned. It was the hot soapy water. But, but in the form of just hot soapy water, unported, uncarried, it wasn't effective at all. But when you, when you put it in the appropriate medium and spread it, it had the effect. That was the picture used to talk about how you dip the human spirit into the effective power of the Spirit of God. And when you took the human, 
He carried the presence of the Spirit of God in the earth, and it was the Spirit of God carried in His person that affected the world. And that's the concept of being baptized in the Spirit. Right? It's an ordinary term for the Greeks, but baptism in the Spirit was a new term in the world. But they used the old language to carry the new things. Right? So they were, they became terms of art. That's the way you explained it, but you needed to understand the domestic application in order to appreciate this entirely new spiritual application. So faith was like that. Faith was another one of these terms. So to the Greek, faith was already an established concept, and the new that faith meant that you dedicated your, your life to certain principles. You lived your life by certain principles. Related to the word pistis is the word epistemology, which means a foundation for standing. So for us, the epistemology of our faith, which seems a contradiction in terms, because we now use the term epistemology almost exclusively in the context of scientific inquiry. And we say that science and faith are opposites. But in truth, epistemology, in its original meaning, includes the word pistis, or faith. Epistemology. And in fact, the root of the word includes at least two other words. It includes the words tetimi and the word histemi. And I'll come to those as well. Now, so he says, faith, pistis, which implies an epistemology, which implies a foundation on which you now a foundation that defines the unique application of faith as it's taken out of the social context and brought into the religious, uh, the spiritual context to define things that the language was never used before to define. So when we talk about faith, we're not talking about the ordinary usage of faith, we're talking specifically of the term of art, which is faith toward God which is an elementary doctrine. So when you're in the venue of talking about faith toward God, you're talking about two beliefs. God exists as your father. It's not merely the, existential, the question of the existential uh, uh, conceit of whether or not God exists. It is for you, because, because of the audience to whom it was written, for you, Faith is, faith toward God is defined as God exists with particularity toward you, with a particular application toward you. Faith toward God means God exists. You believe that God exists as your father. And secondly, you believe that in the moment that he needs to arise, he will do so. Because he will reward you who diligently seek him, and you will discover the reward in the moment of your need. Therefore, 
because the reward you're because the reward you're seeking is is found in finding him when you find him that is the reward you're seeking as opposed to material goods if you're diligent and he will uh, faith faith implying that uh, Whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he will reward those who diligently seek what? Him. So what is the reward? Finding him. Hmm? Contextually, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about uh, um, seeking him for a material result. That's not the reward. If, 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 that is the reward, then that's what you're seeking. If the, if the reward is a material result, you know you have your reward when you've found the thing you've been seeking. So if you're seeking anything, if you call anything the reward that you're seeking, then when you get that thing, that's what you are seeking. But that's not the context, that's not the epistemology of faith. It is not what faith is about. It's the reward that comes for those who diligently seek Him. Now, that faith, pistis, is defined by those two imperatives. That God exists as your Father, and you will find Him. He will reward you with His presence inasmuch as you diligently seek Him. That's why you're told, seek and you'll find, and you'll find me, he said, when you will search for me with all your heart. Therefore, when the next word is unpacked, it's this word. It is the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. But that could not possibly be a definition of faith because you already have the definition in the inherent epistemology. Because pistis already means something. It's, it means that, as we said, pistis already means you, you acknowledge God as your father. It's the epistemology. It's the foundation on which you stand. And you admit that he will reward you with his presence when you diligently seek him. If you read nothing else, just the word faith, it would imply this epistemology because faith to the Greeks meant an epistemology of life regarding a certain thing. Whether it was your citizenship, whether it was your belief in the gods, or whatever. It was just what you established on which you stood to find your conclusions. In Aristotelian logic, it would be the premises from which you proceed. In Platonic logic, it would be the syllogism. All men are mortals. That would be epistemology. From which you would conclude Socrates is a man. Ergo, Socrates is mortal. That would be epistemology of determining the nature of being. Okay? So faith was ordinary in that sense. 
Now, I've worked it as much as I need to, and I've spent as much time on it as I need to. So what then is meant by the substance of things hoped for? Well, again, we've been told forever that faith is to believe God for what you want. Well, that's not seeking Him. He's just a tool for what you're really seeking. Without knowing anything else about the verse, you could not possibly conclude that the word substance is a substitution for the epistemology of faith. So you have, it has to be unpacked differently. And indeed it is, just on the basis of what the word itself means. The word substance is the word hypostasis. H-U-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-S. Hypostasis. It's a compound word comprised of hupo and stasis. Hupo, H-U-P-O. Hupo means under. Under. And stasis refers to your posture because you're talking about epistemology. How you stand under the reality that God is your Father and He rewards you if you diligently seek Him. What is your posture of life if that is your pistis, if that is your epistemology? How do you live in relationship to the fact that you say you believe that God exists as your Father and He will reward you with His presence if you diligently seek Him? Hypostasis. Hmm? Now, as I said, the word then is substance. Same word, substance. Sub is under, stance is posture. It's not material, tangible anything. It's how you stand under. That's the term of art of the word substance. How do you posture yourself in relationship to these foundational beliefs? But you see, we've domesticated the word substance and we don't even see it. Does the word substance, is the word substance comprised of two words, sub and stance? Of course. That's the Greek. Hupo, sub. Stasis stands. But to hear the likes of Kenneth Copeland tell it, it's material goods. It's rubbish. This is garbage theology. That's domesticated usage of terms, irrelevant, I mean, stripped from any relevance to its occurring context in Scripture. Now, there is a word that goes with stance, stasis. All of which, of course, stance means that on which you stand. Epistemology. The epistis of your logic. 
how you understand the application of the principle that you say you believe in. That's epistemology. It's the foundation of your argument. So how do you actually stand under these truths? Well, the reality is that you don't stand. Because the word tetimi, which is root to the word epistemology or faith, that word means to lie down. To lie down. To lie down as if you are asleep. To lie down as if you are in perfect repose. So the way you stand under the truth that God exists as your father and he will show up in your circumstances, the way you stand under that is actually that you lie down. You lie down as if you're asleep. What is typically considered the condition in which your body is if you're asleep, if you're sleeping soundly? You are at rest. You are at rest. Tetimi is the posture of rest. And in fact, if you, if you study the word out, it's about like being, like your bones being uh, in an ossifer. Uh, the word for bone uh, implies the word osso, O-S-O. So uh, the, 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 the box that carries your bones is an osso or a sepulcher or a tomb with a stone rolled to cover it. That's the concept of the shield of faith. Aish. Because in the condition of perfect repose, you are shielded by the pistis of the truth that God exists as your Father. This is the shield of faith. That's why Jesus himself entered into the grave and the stone was rolled to seal him up in the fullness of his obedience to the Father. He was obedient even unto death unto the death of the cross. And from that, God highly exalted him. And it is in that posture and from that posture when the living God arose in him and stood him up that he smashed the gates of hell and destroyed the authority to establish disorder in creation and brought reconciliation between God and man by destroying the works of the devil. For this reason, the Son of God was revealed through resurrection to destroy the works of the devil. He came out of the sepulcher 
So take to yourselves the shield of faith, wherewith you'll be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked. When you lie down in death, when the epistemology of your faith leads you into rest, There's no ability of the accusation of the enemy to penetrate that shield and to define you wrongly. There's no ability of evil to follow you into death because whoever is dead is free from the accusation of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he raises you up, you owe an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature because that's what died. And your life is now hidden with God in Christ. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Yeah. Having defeated the works of the devil. Because, you see, with the word tetimi is another word. It's the word histemi. H-I-S-T-E-M-I. Histemi. And it means to stand up. To be elevated, to be exalted, to be raised up. It works like this. When you are in an environment of allergens, when you are lying down in repose and are unable to resist, your vulnerability induces your enemy to attack you. He sees opportunity. Like a body weakened in an environment of allergens can be attacked, typically is attacked, by allergens. And the body secretes water, fluids, to cushion the vital organs and to prevent them from suffering damage. That process is called histamine. The body's secretion of fluids is the body's defense against your vulnerability to allergens and Medicine calls that the production of the body producing histamines. The pharmaceutical industry has figured out how to cure the excess production of fluids that block the airways as an example of an allergic attack of your body block the, uh, that block the airways. Pharmaceutical industry has discovered how to produce how to mitigate the production of fluids 
to make sure you can still breathe, but to have the body's defensive mechanisms work against the allergens. And those things produced are called antihistamines. Antihistamines to mitigate the production of uh, histamines to allow you to function. So we know the words, we just haven't known them in these contexts. When you are in an environment of an all-out attack by your enemy because of your faith that God exists as your Father and will reward you, and you've entered into that posture, a posture of rest, with the certainty that he will stand up for your defense. He is the histemi of your spiritual man that's produced to defend you against the attacks of your enemy in the environment of vulnerability where you are weak. So Paul said, I have learned to glory in my weakness because when I am weak, then I'm strong. I'm strong because of the working of his mighty power on behalf of those who believe. As powerful a person as Paul was, his destiny to bring the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, this grace that was given to him to move him among the Gentiles, literally to overthrow the darkness of polytheism and the corruption of the Greek and Roman empires to establish the kingdom of God within those metrons, that could not have been accomplished in the strength of any man or in the strength of the group of any, uh, strength, collective strength of a group of any configuration of men. Not possible. So he learned, he learned through a thorn being given in his flesh, that the grace of God was sufficient. Now grace there is not mercy. Grace is an endowment of empowerment. He said, I was given an empowerment. I was given an allotment of grace to bring the good news to the Gentiles. He's not talking about having mercy for the Gentiles. For uh, him receiving mercy for himself, he was speaking about a legitimate constitution of power delegated to him on the basis of him being a sent one with the purpose of bringing the good news to the Gentiles. So he was operating within the metron of his rule, within the measure of his rule. And that's why he could overcome the obstacles that, that the enemy had established in his path to frustrate him in his attempts to fulfill his destiny. That's why he was able to do it. So, glorying in the strength of God, he could press through all that all the long uh, millennia 
of, uh, of, of schemes and tricks and deception that had co-opted the culture of the Greco-Roman world, layer upon layer upon layer. He came to peel it all back and to expose the rottenness of the culture and to install in people who grew up in those environments the culture of the kingdom of heaven. And he needed a grace that was sufficient. And that could not come over the objections of his considerable natural strength. Now, as it regards the fiery darts of the wicked, first understand that the fiery darts come from the wicked one. They're his missiles. So they are the projections of his thoughts upon your soul. It's important to distinguish when you're hearing the voice of God from when you're hearing either your own voice or the voice of the enemy. The voices sound the characteristics of the voices are very distinct. Your own voice will always plead with you not to change anything. Your own voice will always push back against change. Because mankind sees himself as being inherently vulnerable. And so when your own voice is talking to you, it will always stir up a resistance to things that are new. Things that are different, difficult even. Inertia is the cornerstone of human society because it allows for predictability. And it is particularly true among those who control uh, society that any new changes threaten the hegemony that they already uh, have established over others within their metrons or circumstances. So they don't want change. Humans do not prefer change. Change introduces uncertainty and the threat of the potential loss of control. So when you hear the voice pushing back, saying, you know, I, I, I know these things, they sound true, but how on earth are we going to ever engage those things? That's you speaking. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Even Jesus had to overcome his own voice. That was not the voice of the enemy. <coughs> Pardon me. That was not the voice of God. The voice of the enemy had said to him earlier, you won't die. And he responded by saying to the one speaking in that vernacular, get thee behind me, Satan. His voice says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer. 
the character of the voice of your enemy is equally distinct. It will always make you uncomfortable by accusing you. By accusing you. The enemy will bring out of the, tre- of the box of your memories as bad a thought about yourself as you've ever had, as is necessary to control you. He doesn't always bring out the big guns, but if he has to, he will. In an ordinary conversation, when you're the one that had the question that everybody else wanted to ask, but nobody else dared ask it, when you're the one who said, Excuse me, but what about this? Later, when the enemy attacks you with that, this is what he'll say. You know, that was pretty stupid. Everybody was watching you. And how come you didn't know that? You noticed nobody else asked. Because they all knew. Just you, you were the odd person out. No, they all didn't know. They were just glad you were the one who took it upon yourself to ask what they wanted to ask. But that's not how your enemy will replay it to you. The way he replays it to you is, you are so stupid. They were all watching you. And you know by now they don't like you. You're, they're making you uncomfortable. You're making them uncomfortable. You don't even belong among them. And you've been trying all this time to fit in. You've served some of these same people. You went to visit them when they were sick, food. You bring back all the things you ever did. And pretty soon you're on this rabbit trail. You're running down a road that's unprofitable. And before you know it, you're upset at people with whom you've had no exchange at all. It all took place in your head because a voice said, you were out of step with everybody else. And you believed the lie. This is called a fiery dart. It's based in wickedness. A fiery dart stings you. In fact, the word fiery dart is analogous to the bite of a serpent. The bite, the poisonous bite of a serpent. When the poison begins to affect your nerve endings, it's like fire. So the words of the devil attacking your nervous system will bite you like fire. They are so false that they paralyze you. And they force you to turn inwardly upon yourself. And if you go down that road, there cannot be a resolution. The only thing that can come from that is an adversarial result. Because the enemy is the adversary. So if you followed out the thought that you were thinking after the fact, that you've done everything you can to fit in with these people, they won't make room for you, what do you do then? 
in your mind you begin to back away from them. Because the seed of an adversarial relationship has been sown in your mind and it robs you of trusting their motives when they didn't do a thing. And in fact, they would be shocked to think you thought that. And in fact, if you did a poll right afterward, if people stayed around long enough, if you could overcome the embarrassment of that attack upon your person by the enemy, because usually when that happens, you want to get out of there quickly. You want to get out as quickly as you can. If he had stayed around, some of those same people might have told you, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for looking foolish for me. I was about to look as foolish as you. <laughs> because I needed to know myself. But thank you for standing in for me. I owe you one. Come to the next party. I want you at the party because I can count on you to stand in for me in the future as well. They're fiery because they draw upon the wounds that are already in you. They're fiery because they open, they reopen the wounds that are in you. They sting you all over again. Remember, remember the whole layout that I had for you about things that happened to you in the womb or things that happened to you in your childhood and now 30 years later they affect you in the same way they affected you when you were in the womb. That's why Jesus, that's why John baptized Jesus because he had the same reaction when Jesus stood in front of him 30 years later as that he had when, he, when they were both shielded from each other by the walls of their mother's wombs. The enemy knows how to torment you with, with twisting things that happen to you to make you feel as though you were the cause. Or even if you know you weren't the cause, he wants you to feel naked. He wants you to feel vulnerable. He wants you to do everything that you can to fit in. And you will often violate your own standards. And you won't understand why you're violating your own standards in order to fit in. Because it comes from a place in you that you have not detected before. But when the circumstance is right, the enemy will sting you again like he did. And when he does, it's not, it's not as though you're, going, you're responding with the emotions of where you are at that time. You're responding with the same emotions you had when you were vulnerable, at the age and time when you were vulnerable. Because it disconnects the reason and draws up the emotions that you felt. So if you felt vulnerable at that time, you'll feel vulnerable again, even though the situation is vastly different. The connector between the two is the emotion that you feel now that was the emotion you felt then. This is a scheme. It's a wicked scheme. And it defines you in the present 
by something that was actually an act of, 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 of wickedness against you then, but you've come to own it as an identity. That's what he counts on. So whenever you feel this sting, fiery dart, know and understand that's the voice of your enemy. When you do, the way you respond to it is to lie down in the reality of who God is. You cover yourself in the sepulcher by the truth that I can't answer you. I don't know how to figure this out. But this I do know. That I have died with Christ. And I've been raised with him. And I am in new creation. And therefore I cannot be condemned. Even if I was wrong in the situation. The shield of faith is the stone, the stone at the mouth of the sepulchre that says behind here is a person who died. I can't, I may not be able to answer your accusation right now, but prom I promise you I'll come back at you in the future. When I know more than I know now, I'm going to come back. We'll have a throw down in the future, but now I'm not going to give you the advantage. Now I'm just going to lift up the shield of faith and retreat into the position of rest. I'm just going to retreat into the position of rest. This is my safe place. Because here is only the bones of dead men and you can't accuse a dead man of anything. The legal defense is called corpus delecti. The body is missing. <laughs> you got, in, in, in plain vernacular, you got the wrong man. You're accusing the wrong man. That man died. Look, he's behind the shield. Come in if you can. You got the wrong man. But God will inevitably stand up in that circumstance. The third voice you will hear, the first being your own, doesn't want to move, doesn't want to shift, doesn't want to change. The second voice you will hear will be fiery, drawing upon your emotions, making you uncomfortable like a sting of a serpent. The third voice is the voice of God. And he will always say to you, Lazarus, come forth. Come out. You've already escaped death. You're a new creation. And he'll call you forth and his words will pierce the silence of death and establish in you the truth of who you have become. That's why elementary doctrines include Repentance from acts that lead to death. Do not give in to the voice of your enemy. This is a fight. Whether you are a young believer or an old, older believer, this truth transcends all the realms of maturity and you can find the place to stand.
If you're a young believer, ask your father, ask your spiritual father for help. Bring it into the light. Talk about what it is that you're being oppressed with. You may not understand the whole depth of the, of the sting. And it's when you open the matter up that you will get the answer that shows you the connection between what has happened, what happened in the past, what the accusation is now, and how you are to untangle the works of the devil. And if you're an older believer, by now you ought to be practiced in falling into the place of tatimi, of rest, any time and every time you're attacked by your enemy. Because as surely as you die, he will raise you up. And when he raises you up, it'll be to a newness of life that you have not previously experienced. Because eternal life is progressively given to you commensurate with your maturation. Now you see how vastly different the armor of God is from cardboard cutouts that we put on children when they were little. Our understanding of the armor of God has been frozen in since we were at the age of eight or nine. And we have not revisited this seminal teaching of the scriptures, which is actually the conclusion of this massive treatise that Paul writes to the Ephesians. It's not about how we play games in Sunday school with kids. It's about how kings and princes are fitted for the warfare of overthrowing darkness and wickedness, of, of rescuing people who are behind the curtain of darkness, of dislodging de defiled majesties from their places and thrones of authority over families, over, over communities, and over nations. This is what this is, the armor of God. It's how you, it's how you move from a domesticated version of the scriptures to an aggressive utilization of power and authority for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. My time has gone, so I will conclude now. I will, I will be bringing more of these messages uh, from different locations. I have a studio at my house, and I typically will record. So you might expect me to finish out a detailed teaching of all the elements of the armor of God. And you will see that the profile of each of these pieces is how you take up a skill. How you take up a skill by understanding how you have been empowered by God, commensurate with the place to which he has brought you, the level of your maturity to destroy the works of the devil. Well, review these messages. They represent a massive download of a, of a most timely and necessary impartation of apostolic doctrine in the body of Christ today in this season. Expect that families will be healed.
Expect that communities will be shown the light and the glory of God, appearing in the person of the incarnate Christ, members of whose body and instruments of his doing you are. And even the nation will see the light of God that has started here at the ends of the earth to become a shining light among the nations. For indeed, you, you, are the light of the world. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace that is able to build you up and establish you among the sanctified. May grace, mercy, and peace be with you always. Until we see again.